Dear Father, these are powerful and important exhortations. We pray that you would make us attentive to what you're saying here and help us to understand uh, the, the absolute nature of these commands. And that, Lord, our relationships with all men would be impacted. And we would rightly reflect the character of our Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Good morning. This morning, we get to look at the assignment to heap burning coals on the heads of our enemies. In uh, the early 16th century, King Louis the the Twelfth of France said, "Nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy." <laughs> That's so in your face that we find it kind of humorous, but it's really just the logical extreme of a sentiment that characterizes every human being. I did a. Uh, a Google search on the phrase revenge stories this week and it came back with 168 million hits. <laughs> now a lot of those are duplicates, but you get the point. <laughs> Our culture may express appreciation for those who uh, steadfastly resist returning evil for evil. Uh, I think actually of men like Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, who accomplished great things because they took that approach. But if it does appreciate men like that, it appreciates them from a distance. Because our culture is consumed with self-protection, self-preservation, and making sure that evil is responded to in kind. Even though there are uh, some gentler souls among men who cringe at the thought of, uh, of exacting revenge in a violent fashion, all men are skilled at returning evil for evil. It's part of the sin nature of every man. It's part of the fleshly nature of us as believers. And uh, it's something that, that we need to, to take a good hard look at. And Paul takes a very very direct look at it in this passage. In the passage this morning, Paul's going to, he's going to take aim at the vengeful impulse in man, and he's going to present us with a set of exhortations that, like so many others in this epistle, turn our expectations upside down. One of those passages, uh, or this is, this is the passage that defines in radical terms what the sanctified life actually looks like, how it plays out when we behave in a way that conforms to the character of Christ. In the previous passage in verses 9 through 16 that we looked at last time, Paul talked about our relationships with one another. He touched on, in verse 14, relationships with unbelievers who persecute us. Here, he moves to that specific emphasis. And he he gets very direct in dealing with how we relate to our enemies, to those who persecute and despise us. But the radical principle that he presents here also applies in our relationships with one another. Uh, and we'll, we'll make sure to take a look at that as well. 
Before we examine what the passage says, I want to look a little bit at the structure. First, just want to point out that verse 17 and then again verse 21 pick up on an idea that Paul laid out in verse 9, in the second half of verse 9. In that verse he said, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 17 begins, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And this passage ends in verse 21 with, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That juxtaposition of evil and good is common both to verse 9 and verse 21, the the first and the last verse of this passage. I consider both of those to be summary exhortations uh, of the the content that occurs in between. I also want to just draw your attention to what I believe is a, a very simple literary device that Paul uses here called a chiasm. He does it quite a lot where he presents an idea and then a second idea and then he repeats the second one and goes back to the first one. A, B, B, A. If you look at the way these verses are laid out in 17 through 20, you have two positive exhortations in the middle. Give thought to what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And they're surrounded or sandwiched between two negative exhortations. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone and never take your own revenge. The point of that structure, I believe, is straightforward. The two middle exhortations parallel each other, and the two outside exhortations parallel each other. And by parallel, I mean they are talking about the same thing. One is amplifying or expanding on the other. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the, the two inside exhortations first. And then we're going to look at the two outside negative exhortations. Based on, and and by the way, I mentioned already that verse 21 I consider to be a summary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Based on that structure, here's, uh, here's my outline. We're going to look first at the two positives in verse 17b and 18. Then we're going to look at the two negative exhortations on each side of that. And then we'll conclude by looking at that summary or Central exhortation, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I hope that's essentially clear. Here are the two positive commands or exhortations. Give thought to what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In that first command, give thought to what is right in the sight of all men, the word give thought to means to think about beforehand. It means to give serious thought to something. Paul's talking about intentionality. It is not going to suffice if we glance, give a glancing thought to the things that our culture or our world considers to be acceptable. Paul's saying give it some serious thought and think about it in advance before you act. And then he provides what I believe is the goal of doing that or the outcome of doing that in the next verse, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The second exhortation depends on the first. He's saying, having given serious thought to that which is right in the sight of all men, do all that you reasonably can to be at peace with all men. 
This requires serious thought and it requires serious action. Now, I'd hazard to say that most of us don't think very often or very long about what it means to live at peace with unbelievers. Paul uses repetition here to emphasize something that's that's very interesting. He says, if possible, and then he says, so far as it depends on you, he's emphasizing the relative nature of these, of these two exhortations. He's saying, these are not absolute exhortations. You're not going to be able to fulfill these completely in every case with every person. It's very important that we understand what Paul's saying here. We will not be able to comply in all respects with the world's concept of what is good. In fact, I don't think we'll be able to comply in most respects with the world's concept of what is good. The world is moving further and further away from acknowledging what God declares to be good, and it's declaring sin to be righteousness and righteousness to be sin. And it's demanding that we agree with it, which we cannot do. But Paul's point is that we must thoughtfully and carefully avoid provoking or justifying the hostility and accusations that are directed to us by unbelievers to whatever extent is possible without compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some things that the world considers good that are, in fact, right in the sight uh, of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the world embraces those good things with right motivation, nor does it mean that they uh, embrace them with humility before God, because if men are humbled before God, they fall down and look to him as Savior. Um, They recognize their sin and they, they believe in Jesus Christ. But I believe what this is getting at is that, uh, There are things that the world recognizes to be right whether they do them or not. If you could get most Christians to talk off record, they would agree that things like marital fidelity and two-parent families with a man and a woman as the parents and self-sacrificial acts of kindness trump or are better than sexual self-indulgence, untraditional marriage, and selfish, selfish acts of unkindness, right? But as Martin Luther King pointed out in his now famous letter from Birmingham jail, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. What falls into this category? Uh, that which is right in the sight of all men. Uh, I'm going to bump over to 1 Peter 2 for a minute because Peter, I believe, is writing in the same vein as Paul in this passage. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17. And he's talking about things that we need to do that protect our reputation among unbelievers to the greatest extent possible. He says in verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
And then in verse 15, he says, For such is the will of God that by, by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now it's interesting uh, that Paul talks, uh, Peter talks about the fact that evildoers will slander us, us who are believers. But I believe his point is, make sure that their accusations are false accusations. In verse 12, uh, what he says is, uh, is, is pretty intriguing to me. He says, So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? That's judgment day. When Christ returns and judges men, those who slandered us are supposed to be able to glorify God by acknowledging our good works. Now, they won't be happy about it, but we're supposed to give them that basis for glorifying God when judgment day comes around. There won't be any false accusations on that day. There will be only true accusations. And it won't be men making those accusations. It will be God. I'm going to go another little pass through that same passage to note what kinds of behaviors does Peter say that we need to practice now in order to ensure that when the day of judgment comes, evil men will glorify God on account of our good deeds. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts. He says, keep your behavior excellent. That second one's kind of general. He says, submit yourself to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. In verse 16, he says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, considering that this is Peter and not Paul, I find it noteworthy how closely Peter's themes here correspond to Paul's in this this part of Romans that we're looking at. Look at this. Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Paul says in Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Peter says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he says, honor the king. Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be in subjection to governing authorities. Peter says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And in all of Romans 14, Paul talks about tempering our liberty with love as bond slaves of God and not of self. Peter says, honor all men. Paul says in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Peter says, love the brotherhood. Paul says in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You see a pattern here? (laughs) Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Peter and Paul are saying essentially the same things because it's the same Holy Spirit who's superintending both of them, and they're talking about the same essential issue in these two passages, how we behave in a manner that is honorable even though unbelievers oppose that which we proclaim. 
Now, this isn't intended to be uh, an exhaustive list, but it certainly gives us food for thought as we give thought to that which is right in the sight of all men and as we strive to guard our reputation among unbelievers. Now, what will of necessity cause offense? We said earlier that Paul, he's, he's, uh, he is non-absolute about the command to be at peace with all men. He is, he is very explicitly saying there's going to be limits there. What will of necessity cause offense? Well, there is one thing that makes it impossible for us to absolutely be at peace with all men, and that is the gospel. We are commanded to proclaim that which God himself declares to be an offense to this fallen world system and to individual sinners. In John 15, very shortly before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus assured his disciples that they would be hated by the world because it hated him first. And they are his representatives. And he said, the slave is not greater than his master. He's the master. We're the slaves. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. The very straightforward biblical reality is that it is inevitable that if we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ rightly and boldly, we will not be at peace with all men. But that's fine, that's good with God, because that's his fault, not ours. <laughs> In Luke 6.26, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. If you proclaim the truth, it will not be possible that all men speak well of you. Only false prophets, those guys that tickle men's ears with the things they want to hear at the expense of the truth, those are the only ones who get to enjoy the approval of all men. By the way, in the very next verse in Luke 6, Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And that's where Paul goes in the chapter that we're looking at. Before I move on, I just want to uh, explore this a little bit. The general cultural acceptance that we've enjoyed for many generations in America as believers has been an historical aberration. More to the point, I believe that acceptance has been possible only because the church in America has not boldly and fully represented Christ. If we had, we would always have been hated by our culture. My brother Colin McDougall says, there is no place on earth where it's okay to preach the gospel. It's <laughs> a great statement. It applies always, and it applies everywhere. There are some places where the gospel will get you imprisoned or killed. There are other places where it will just get you despised. But in all places, when we as God's people faithfully take up our cross daily and follow Christ, when we truly proclaim the word concerning Christ without regard to ourselves, the world will hate us because it hates the one that we proclaim. That doesn't mean every man will hate us. There are some who are people of peace. 
There are many whose hearts God is preparing for salvation. They may hate us for a little while, but they won't hate us forever because God's going to save them. But most by far, most will despise us if we preach the gospel in truth. Deb and I saw a new Christian-produced movie a couple of evenings ago with some friends, and I enjoyed the movie a lot. It did a great job presenting the themes of love, forgiveness, redemption, and renewal. It was well-produced. It was well-acted. It was well-scripted. But like the overwhelming majority of ostensibly Christian movies that have been released lately, it pulled its punches when it came to the heart of the gospel. God's holiness... Man's universal sinfulness, the curse of death and condemnation that is the result of our sin. The fact that every man who does not turn to Jesus Christ in faith is condemned eternally. It didn't say those things. The message of the cross is not good news for those who already see themselves as righteous or for those who prefer the status quo. Our assignment is not to figure out how to make the gospel palatable to all men. It is to speak the truth and love while making sure that our own behavior doesn't distract from the gospel. Praying that some will repent and receive life, but knowing that most will reject the gospel and despise us for proclaiming it. Jesus said the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. So unless Jesus was lying in, Luke, in John 15 and Luke 6 and Matthew 7 and several other places, then If we are not offensive to the culture because of the gospel we bear, it's because we're not rightly presenting the gospel. I don't think there's any other conclusion that we can come to. All right, so that's what must cause offense. What must not cause offense? We look for some of the positive things we can do. Let's talk about the negatives. The gospel will inevitably cause offense, but... What are other ways that we distract from the gospel, that we offend unbelievers and cause them not to pay attention to the gospel because of us? Now, there are a number of things I could get all preachy about here. (laughs) And I blew a big chunk of time this week thinking about that and making a bunch of notes. Things like uh, how evangelical Christians are so strident about certain political positions that they create, we create, artificial and unnecessary barriers to the gospel. And I say artificial and unnecessary because if we take some of those hot-button issues and we compare them to Scripture, we don't find any support for them. Those things are no doubt worth considering. But they pale by comparison with the one violation of our God-given assignment that Paul singles out right here in this passage. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. The offense that will most quickly and decisively destroy our witness is, in a word, vengeance. 
This is critically important precisely because we know we will be opposed. (laughs) We know it will not be possible to be at peace with all men. We bear a gospel that's an offense to men. But the very worst thing that we can possibly do when we find ourselves opposed by this world for proclaiming the truth is to repay evil with evil. There's a guy named Ben Kawasha. He was an Anglican archbishop in Nigeria. Uh, and my wife uh, gave me this article. It was a little bio of him. And it talked about how in March 1987 and in March 2000 in Nigeria, the Muslims started burning churches and killing Christians. And it talks about how he, with with great agony, wrote to the churches and to the believers in Nigeria, and he told them, don't do anything to get back at those who are opposing you. He suffered greatly. There's there's more to his story that's, uh, that's hard to read. But he never paid back evil for evil. He commanded the, he exhorted the other believers in Nigeria not to return evil for evil. And you know why? Because he did not want Christians with a vengeful spirit to violate the character of Jesus Christ. Vengeance violates and undermines grace in the worst possible way. Every exhortation that we see in Romans chapter 12 through 15 is to be our response to the abundant mercies of God that have been poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. And vengeance not only ignores, it denies the mercies of God. It negates them. It cancels them out. It spits on the mercies of God. There are two negative exhortations in this passage. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge. And there's an important contrast in these two exhortations if you compare them with the two middle ones, the two positives. Because in the, in the positive exhortations, Paul went out of his way to make it clear that they were relative, that they had exceptions, that they didn't apply in all cases. And in the two negative ones, he goes out of his way to say they do apply in all cases that there are no exceptions, that they are absolute. He uses repetition here too, but he uses it to emphasize the absolute nature of of these commands. Never with anyone repay evil for evil. Never take your own revenge. If If we really acknowledge the absolute nature of these commands... And if we act on them, it'll have profound implications for the way we live. But if we qualify them, if we don't recognize them to be absolute, they'll have very little, if any, impact on us because we will jump at the first opportunity to find a loophole. Because that's the way the habit of the old man is going to do it. See, we don't like these commands. 
We're very fond of protecting ourselves. We're very fond of returning evil for evil. It starts when a child is very, very young. And so if we don't recognize that these are absolute commands, they'll be useless to us. (laughs) The word beloved just jumps off the page. Never take your own revenge, beloved. (laughs) Paul establishes the positive basis for the negative command with a single word. See, for us who have sinned grievously against the holy character of God, yet who are now beloved of God by Christ's doing alone, it is the height of hypocrisy for us to seek revenge against those who hurt us. In that same verse, Paul goes on to say, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And of course, our first impulse when we read that is to say, Okay, I can roll with that. As long as I know God is going to get even on my behalf, then I don't have to be the one who gets the revenge. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. He doesn't say pray for the wrath of God. He doesn't say pursue the wrath of God. He says, leave room for the wrath of God. His point is that the entire issue of vengeance is God's assignment and not yours. It's not even your concern. You and I don't get to be the ones who determine upon whom God's wrath will be executed. That's not our job. Make no mistake, many men and women will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. The way is narrow. And when Jesus Christ returns, we are told in forceful terms that he will avenge his people for the persecution that we have suffered at the hands of godless men. Read 2 Thessalonians 1 where it describes hell, eternal separation from the glory of God. It's talking about God avenging us. But there's a reason that this is God's assignment instead of ours. And that's because we don't have a leg to stand on if we're demanding that God drop the hammer on those who have wronged us. Because the wrong that we have done against Him is infinitely greater than what any man will ever do to us. This is fundamental, so I want to make sure we get it. We are not called to seek vengeance against those who have wronged us. That includes not seeking our own vengeance, and it includes not seeking vengeance by proxy, by appealing to God. We are to earnestly desire and pray for the repentance and salvation of those who have wronged us, and we are to act as God's instruments to move the hearts of men toward repentance. Verse 20 is a verse that has (laughs) been interpreted in, in many ways. And again, at first glance, that vengeful spirit just jumps on this and says, this is great, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What could be better than that? We get to be kind and he gets to be smoked. 
But look at the images in the passage from which this comes. This is a citation of Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22. It says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Reward you. Okay? That's pretty much the same as what Paul said. But look at the verse before it in Proverbs. Like one who takes a garment off on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. If you remove a person's coat on a cold day, he's going to be cold. He's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to seek a way to get warm. You're creating a tension that he's going to want to resolve. If you pour acidic vinegar on alkaline soda, you create a volatile mix that produces a powerful reaction. If you sing happy person, happy songs to a person who's suffering an emotional hurt, he's probably going to find another place to be. These images are not about destroying another person. They're about creating an irresistible tension in another person. And in the same manner, if you show kindness to your enemy, if you feed him when he is hungry, if you give him water when he is thirsty, even though he has sought your destruction, you're going to create an irresistible tension in that other person. See, it's very unsettling when you love those who hate you. It's disarming. And it is a marvelous instrument in the hands of God to move someone toward repentance. And you know how we know that that's the way it works? It's because that's how God did it with us. If you go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Don't you get the fact that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? That's what God did with us. We deserve hell. And he showed us the greatest kindness that will ever exist in Jesus Christ. And that's what moves us toward repentance. All right. So heaping burning coals is not supposed to be a malicious thing. And by the way, just think about that for a second. If I, if I walk up to my brother David and I put some burning coals on his head, is he going to just keep doing what he was doing? Probably not. No, it's, it's, it's a tension that we create as an instrument in the hands of God. The central exhortation at the end of this passage, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it's interesting in the Greek, the word evil and the word good both have the definite article, the evil and the good. So what evil and what good are Paul talking about? Well, the evil of which he has just been speaking is the opposition or curses or persecution directed toward us by those who are the enemies of Christ and of the gospel of Christ. And I believe the good that he's talking about points back to verse 2 of this chapter. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's talking about the good that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. 
We are not to be overcome by evil. We are to overcome evil with good. And that good is everything that is in keeping with Christ. Now, this is a critical assignment. And it is an exceedingly powerful reality for us who are the redeemed of God. The sanctification by which we actually demonstrate or work out God's holiness in our day-to-day lives does not come about just because we stop responding to evil with evil. It comes about when we overcome evil with good. The Christian's life is not fundamentally a list of things that we have to stop doing. It is a lifestyle of joyfully doing that which manifests God. It's a lifestyle that shows to the world the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In verse 14, back earlier in the passage, Paul didn't just say, don't curse those who persecute you. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And while that seems to apply to unbelievers. Those are the ones that typically persecute believers. The command to bless and curse not most definitely applies to us in our relationships with one another as well and with our wives and with our children and with our parents and with our brothers and sisters. As we saw last week in 1 Peter 3, right after commanding believers to submit graciously even to unjust masters, And after telling wives to graciously respect even disobedient husbands, Peter presents the summary statement. uh, Don't have a slide on that. He says, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, I know I said this last week, but it bears repeating. We bless others because it is our destiny to be blessed eternally. We bless because we who deserve to be cursed have received infinite and eternal blessing from the hand of God. That's precisely why we bless those who direct insults or evil behavior toward us. And it's precisely why it's not enough to just stop at avoiding the people who hurt us. And please don't miss this point. (laughs) It's very easy for us to get this wrong by doing half of the assignment. If you're in a marriage and you find yourself on the receiving end of insults and accusations from your spouse, or even if he or she doesn't directly insult you, but you find yourself suffering because of his self-indulgence, it is not enough for you merely to avoid a vengeful response. That's half of the assignment. It is not enough even for you to simply abstain from responding at all. Now, sometimes in some, some heated situations, that's the right, the right thing to do to either say nothing or to politely walk away until things chill. But that is not the end of the assignment. Our assignment from God is to give a blessing when we are cursed. Our assignment from God is to overcome evil with good. (laughs) 
We are not called in our marriages or in any other relationship to peaceful coexistence. Uh, A lot of couples, unfortunately, think that that's the best that they can hope for. And when they do, when they settle for that, they're settling for half of God's assignment. And they're not going to have a very very godly marriage. We are called to return blessing for curse, to pray for those who despitefully use us, to overcome evil with good. In short, and at the very heart of the matter, we are called to love others as we have been loved by Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2.23, there's a whole section here, 1 Peter 2, that I've put up. Uh, Let me read that. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So Christ is the one we look to to know how to do this stuff. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus did not return evil for evil, and the basis upon which he was able to act in that manner was because he trusted his Father, who always judges righteously. But look at this. Jesus didn't stop there. He overcame evil with good. Because the next two verses say, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds... You were healed. The most amazing thing to me about that great passage is how verse 23 plays out in God's plan. Verse 23 says that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But here's the question. Who got that righteous judgment? The next two verses tell us. Jesus got that righteous judgment. He trusted and he entrusted his well-being to the one who judges righteously, and that one poured out that judgment on him. Now that's done. We don't have to repeat it. We couldn't if we wanted to. But if we think that God is promising to us that when we obey these commandments, we won't suffer anymore this side of heaven, we need to think again. That's not what he's promising. In fact, it may very well be (laughs) that when we do these things, we will suffer more. And that's fine. That's God's problem, not ours. Jesus blessed those who cursed him. And the servants are not greater than their master. Some in my hearing today... uh, may one day suffer to the point of death for standing on the gospel. And some, as you seek to live out the character of God, will most certainly suffer insult and pain, even at the hands of other believers, some of whom may be your family. But as one whose destiny it is to inherit a blessing, God calls you always to bless and never to return evil for evil. If you want to know how far God intends you to go, you know where you're supposed to draw the line here, <laughs> all you've got to do is look at Christ and you know there is no line.
If our eyes are on Christ, we may still struggle sometimes with the how, with exactly, you know, with the details of how to do this, but we will not struggle with the assignment. We'll be crystal clear about the assignment. And that's very, very valuable to us as believers. I'm going to finish uh, just by reading a passage that I gave you one verse of earlier. This is Jesus in Luke 6, verse 26 through 36. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great And I love this. You will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind even to ungrateful and evil men. That's us. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Beloved, let us show mercy every time we are wronged because we have been shown mercy by God in Jesus Christ. Let us do good to others because we have received good from the hand of God in Jesus Christ. Let us forgive because we have been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. Let us love because we have been loved by God in Jesus Christ. There can be no other basis for our treatment of others than to do toward others as Christ has done toward us. Loving Father, We pray that you would burn this into our hearts. This is not the way we tend to do things. But it's it's powerful. It is revolutionary. It's radical. (laughs) And, Lord, you don't pull your punches here. You tell us there are no exceptions. We pray that in our in all of our encounters with unbelievers, including those who oppose and oppress and persecute us, that we would be quick to show kindness to them for Jesus' sake and for theirs. We pray that in our relationships with one another within the body, in our relationships with our husbands and wives and our children and our parents and our families and our friends, that we would allow no exception to these commands because you allow no exception. 
Teach us, Father, always, always to bless and not to curse. We pray it because it is that which is true of our Savior and our Master. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.